The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Natasha Feroz and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Nick Moore on the recent suspension of Politics for All, Tanya Gold on the perks of chicken soup, and Cindy Yu, who reviewed The Kingdom of Characters, a book about Chinese language. First up, Nick Moore. On the 2nd of January, I woke up late to the sound of my phone buzzing continuously and a sense that something had gone badly wrong. The first message was from a friend. Having a nice holiday, he wrote, above a screenshot of my political Twitter account covered in block letters. Suspended. My reaction was to swear in just the way my dad does whenever he crashes his car. Politics Rule was a news aggregation service I started two years ago when I was 17. It took the most salient lines from news articles and posted them across social media always pointing readers to the original publication. The aim was to engage a younger audience in politics by summarising stories in a more accessible way. It worked, amassing nearly 500,000 followers in around two years, 400,000 of those in the past eight months. What started out as a hobby, born of my own interest in politics, ended up as a major Twitter account, followed by hundreds of MPs, many cabinet ministers, including the Chancellor and even the Prime Minister's wife. More on her later. Sensing a demand for more accessible news, I built a small team of young people and we created offshoot accounts in football and more general news. We picked up an extra 300,000 followers on those within a few weeks. During our final month, our tweets were seen nearly a billion times. I believe if we had not been shut down, This time next year we would have had more than 5 million followers across our network, overtaking any newspapers in Britain. Then, at the start of this month, Twitter permanently suspended the For All profiles on their platform. All that work destroyed overnight. We were given no warnings and no real explanation, just an automated email explicitly telling us not to reply. Most people in Westminster seemed delighted. Some journalists had worried we were stealing their content by publishing a summary of it. Others didn't seem to mind. Senior journalists would even message asking us to help push their stories. But some publications claimed we were taking their clicks by not promoting to their links in the original tweets. To me, this demonstrated a misunderstanding of the Twitter algorithm. It suppresses posts with links in them as it wants to keep people on its platform rather than have them move on to another website. That's why we'd always link to the original in a follow-up tweet. A person from Twitter did eventually state that we had violated their platform manipulation rules by artificially amplifying or disrupting conversations through the use of multiple accounts. But this can't be the real reason. Many other publications do this all the time, without consequence. And if this were a problem, why not ask us to stop? We would have, immediately. Could there be something darker at play? 
Sometimes I wonder. I turned down a mega offer to sell the network just weeks before it was taken down. We also gave the government a lot of grief. Stories of their mishaps or dodgy dealings that would have been buried on page 10 of a newspaper were summarised and amplified by politics rule, giving them a far bigger audience. We didn't shy away from the most embarrassing stories, often to the fury of Number 10. One night, while I was out clubbing, Number 10's Director of Communications called me at around 11pm, threatening legal action for one of our tweets. It had read, Breaking. Boris Johnson has a reportedly stated he is experiencing buyer's remorse over marrying Carrie Johnson. I have no idea how he got my number, and I have no idea why he thought we delete the tweets. It was simply a summary of news reports elsewhere. But the threat was interesting in itself. As the saying goes, news is what someone, somewhere, wants to suppress, and everything else is propaganda. On social media, perhaps you can define news as something number 10 wants to delete. I know the PM's wife paid attention to our page, because a few months ago, at around 2.30am, she briefly liked one of our posts, and then immediately unliked it. We saw. I still think there is a reasonable explanation for why our Twitter accounts were taken down. I still hope Twitter will explain how exactly we broke the rules and why they didn't simply tell us what we were doing wrong. But I'm proud of what my team achieved. We shook up the system and had a blast. And we debunked the myth that young people are bored by politics. If you present news in an engaging way, young people will read it. Providing, of course, that Twitter gives them the chance. That was Nick Moore. Next, it's Tanya Gold. Catherine Chicken is sickly. She has swollen up like a barrage balloon with an evil face. She lumbers about. It is peritonitis, the vet says, after I make my husband drive her to the animal hospital in Falmouth. She will not recover without an implant that prevents her ovulating. Chickens are ever in danger of reproduction, like human women, and this is why I find them so touching. They are feathered paradigms. There is a novel on this called Brood. They counsel implants on the chicken welfare site. They counsel deification on the chicken welfare site. But it's £250 for a chicken that costs less than a tenner. And my husband is from a farming family and says he couldn't live with the shame. So I let her out of the idiotic only for Londoners Bauhaus style run. I want her to die in a garden, not a cage, whatever Defra says. Can you drink a chicken that has died of peritonitis? I don't dare bring it up on the chicken welfare site. Even Spunner's I won't let Catherine die in vain, so I made soup and drank her for memorial. My mother thinks we should turn Catherine into soup and tells her so whenever they meet. It's her hello. Chicken soup is the headline of Ashkenazi Jewish cuisine, probably because Ashkenazi Jewish cuisine is Slav food without pork. This makes chicken soup, in the words of the almost halakhically Jewish Boris Johnson, the least disastrous option. Have you ever tried to soul-kiss someone after a fishbowl? In retrospect, those teenage synagogue socials were designed to stop us mating. They gave us a chastity belt made of fishbowls, pickled herring and gefilte fish. Chicken soup is stock. You boil an old chicken overnight with onion for depth, tomato for colour and carrot for sweetness. You then add knedlach, matzo balls, kreplach, meat dumplings or lokshin, egg noodles, depending on the technique of the grandmother you love best. The onion fried in chicken fat must be burnt or your ball will be tepid and insubstantial. It'll fall apart. Chicken soup should be aggressive and never delicate. 
Perhaps it is a metaphor for the European diaspora that is gone, and that is why we treat it like a family member to be consumed. It tastes wonderful when my mother makes it, hot, deep, fierce. It is, or was, alive. I have never had even adequate chicken soup from anyone but my mother or grandmother. But, I repeat, it is stock. I wonder if it is very Jewish to imbue stock with meaning and present it like a commandment written in stone. You shall make stock and boast about it. There is a series of self-help books named Chicken Soup for the Soul. They are so successful, there is even a chicken soup for the soul. It's Christmas. But not for Catherine Chicken. I will bury her under the rhododendron bush. That was Tanya Gold. And finally, Cindy Yu. Any student of Chinese will sympathise with the 17th century Jesuit priest, Father Emmerich Lanois de Chavagnac, when he wrote, One can only endure the pain of learning it for the love of God. With its convoluted characters, subtle tones and numerous homonyms, it can seem as though the language just doesn't want to be learned. Jing Tzu's Kingdom of Characters starts from the premise that this is not merely a problem for foreigners. For millennia, the Chinese themselves have been confounded by it. At the beginning of the last century, the literacy rate in China was only 30% for men and 2% for women. Those without the means to study had little chance of grasping the idiosyncratic script. Written Chinese has tens of thousands of characters, standalone ideographs that are not alphabetic or phonetic, and often look maddeningly similar. Books were mainly written in archaic classical Chinese rather than the vernacular. The educated elite and the masses thus inhabit two entirely separate worlds, the late Qing reformer Wang Zhao wrote. Spoken Chinese came with its own problems. Homonyms abound and can only be distinguished by particular tones, four for Mandarin and nine for Cantonese. A vast number of regional dialects meant that people from different corners of China struggled to understand each other, a particular difficulty for the Qing army when drawing national reinforcements in the Opium Wars. The problem was not an abstract one. Father Chavagnac was among the first Europeans to venture to China, arriving in Guangzhou in 1701. He'd be followed by traders, envoys and armies over the next three centuries. Much has been written about how and why the empire crumbled so easily and slipped into decades of national humiliation. Agitators such as Wang Zhao blame the language. How could an illiterate nation, barely capable of communicating internally, possibly stand up to the military and scientific forces of foreign imperialism? Kingdom of Characters is an authoritative account of the linguists, scientists and politicians whose mission it was to simplify and adapt Chinese. As Western technology began to dominate, Chinese was even threatened with extinction. Be it telegraphy, typewriters or computing, the systems of modern communication were designed with Western languages in mind. The chief problem with Chinese was its lack of an alphabet. How could a typewriter spit out thousands of individual characters when Western models require just 26 letters plus numbers and punctuation? How could telegraphs be sent in Chinese when the underpinning cipher, Morse code, was expressed only in letters and numbers? These were intractable problems, and without adapting Chinese to each technological era, the nation stood little chance of keeping up with the modern world. The genius of the men who set about solving these problems after the Second Opium War, and they were all men, provides a welcome corrective to the notion that the Chinese are uncreative. Some of their methods were nothing short of revolutionary. By 1955, a national dialect had been formed to overcome regional disparities. Received pronunciation was much needed, 
and early homogenization attempts saw violence erupt when one linguist thought another had called him a son of a bitch, when in fact he'd been talking about rickshaws. By the 1980s, thousands of overcomplicated traditional characters had been pared down to create simplified Chinese. It was a process that could only be seen through by the zealous Chinese Communist Party. Their predecessors, the nationalists, had failed to overcome opposition from cultural conservatives when they'd tried decades earlier. Here, Tzu is refreshingly even-handed in giving credit where it's due. Writing, Mao's cultural workers brought literacy to every man, woman and child. More accurately, by that decade, two-thirds of adults could read and write, and by 2018, the general literacy rate was around 90%. You don't need to know Chinese or about typewriters or Morse code to enjoy this book, but it would help. Tu makes an impressive stab at writing for the uninitiated. Explaining one librarian's innovative idea of indexing Chinese script by shape, she compares the method to classing round letters together. C, G, Q, O. Instead of from A to Z, but for readers with no repertoire of Chinese characters to draw on, we'll talk of mixing and matching radicals, a special type of component in characters, or of the geometric categorization of characters make much sense. And in the more technical chapters, sentences such as he was able to achieve the final step of restoring a character from compressed vector data form to a printable bitmap went over this reviewer's head. Nevertheless, Tu has delivered a well-told story about those who created modern China not through the barrel of a gun or a little red book, but through dictionaries, libraries and printing presses. As the Chinese say, heroes are born out of turbulent times, and what China has undergone has been nothing if not turbulent. That was Cindy Yu. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week. Thank you.